Hey, it's Darcy McConvey, and this is the Venture and Gains Podcast. The purpose of the show is to connect people to other great people, ideas, and opportunities. Everyone has less than a handful of people in their network where it seems like there's something different about them. Everything they touch seems to turn to gold, and they're those can't-miss people, and you just know it. These are the podcast guests. We catch them at various stages of their career, learn from how they think, so you can connect the dots and imply it. Most importantly, we all want to meet more of these people, and we'll work to connect you. Matt is a longtime strength coach to some of the world's greatest athletes. But beyond that, he considers himself a creative problem solver, helping people reach their goals by pushing themselves to their potential. But there's more. Part scientist, part life coach, Matt is in a great position to offer insights into how the intangibles separate true greatness. His training philosophy is based around health, longevity, and performance, boiling it down to the fact that the weight on the bar might change, but the principles never do. Whether you're an executive or an athlete, and it's great to apply to life generally. Given his background, he's endless great stories, but the emergence of the workout called the Swedish Touch created for legendary Maple Leaf Matt Sundin is a great one. We hit on interesting topics like micro-coaching emerging in sports, skill-specific and hyper-specialized coaching, as well as the bubble in pro sports and how athletes are human too, and the bubble impacts them. There's lots of great takeaways in this one, so I hope you enjoy this chat with Matt. I'm very excited, always excited to be here, but with today's special guest, Matt Nickel. So Matt, welcome and thanks for your time. Thanks for being here. Always great to chat with you, Darcy. Looking forward to it. So I try to intro with uh, a unique question or something that is not the standard background. So you're a strength coach uh, extraordinaire and part scientist, part life coach and mentor, just a, just a phenomenal background and someone who's helped certainly a, a lot of people. But right out of the gates, what separates great athletes from good athletes? No, that's, a, that's an excellent question. You know, there are the very uh, tangible, obvious things. Uh, and, and, you know, when you're talking about team sports, you can, you can look at seven-foot-tall basketball players or 350-pound, you know, football players or guys that run lightning fast and things like that. And those are the very clear, obvious things that would separate, you know, the exceptional athletes that make it to be professionals from, from the regular Joes like, like myself. Uh, and many other people, but what separates even within the professional group, those true superstars from the other guys who are just merely really, really good or even great. It's those intangibles. And that's that passion, that drive. And when I say humility, it's not always in the, in the most uh, obvious sense of the word, but that quality of never being satisfied with their accomplishment, always feeling they could do better. Those, those are the intangibles that I see that really separate the truly great ones. These are the all-star hall of fame you know once in a generation type of players it's really those intangibles because you know at the end of the day compared to the average joe uh those players are certainly you know most often bigger stronger faster uh but compared to their peer group they're not always necessarily the the biggest the strongest or the fastest but they're the ones that that marry those very tangible qualities with those other special more intangible qualities yeah it's a great answer you see that the ones that are, you know, something's driving them, whether it's just the drive to be the best or, you know, to never be beaten. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because oftentimes they're not the ones that, you know, on the, uh, on the hockey card or basketball card or on the stat sheet look like the, uh, the best athletes, but oftentimes they are, sometimes they, they do, but, but not in all the case. So in your view, just parlaying off that, what, what do you think is the number one determining factor in an athlete's longevity outside of luck? How come some athletes go, you know, for 12 years or 15 years in a pro career and some sort of look like they would do that, but end up fizzling out at four or five or year six type thing? I think, you know, again, it's, it's impossible to boil it down to one trait. Uh, I think there are many things that go into it, but uh, the one that I think uh, is probably most important is that passion for their craft, passion for their sport, you know, or, you know, in your case, passion for your, your business, uh, if, if that's what we're talking about. But I think 
that's a really important underlying factor because you know, for even for those exceptional athletes who are exceptionally gifted genetically, there is going to be adversity, you know, and then and these guys are going to sustain injuries, there's going to be problems that they'll need to overcome. And if they don't have that underlying passion, it's it's not impossible because some people just really are so gifted that they they you know they are so exceptionally strong or fast or skilled. But for the most part, it's that passion, that desire to want to be better, to want to do more, to want to work harder day in, day out, even when it's not fun, that, you know, quote unquote grind that these athletes will go through. That's what's necessary. And it's that that passion that will drive them to continually find ways to be the best. And even as their career, you know, reaches those twilight years and they're, you know, they're, they're you know, in the final stages of their career, it's that same passion that will drive them to find new ways to succeed, to, to contribute on the team in a different role than they had when they were the young superstar. But with, without that love of what they do, that passion of what they do, that pride and professionalism of what they do, there is a lot of adversity along the way. It's easy for many of those stars to fizzle out. The guy that jumps out to me is, uh, you know, there's a number of them, but is LeBron. Like, it's just unbelievable. He's got, he's the total package in terms of physique and mentality, but like just durable as anything. It's incredible. You know, he, he's, he's an example, obviously, of, uh, you know, a guy who's been blessed with fantastic genetics. You know, when you compare him to the average person, but, you know, if you look at the subset of his peer group in the NBA, he's not the tallest guy in the NBA. He doesn't have the highest vertical jump. He's not the fastest, you know, um, he, you know by, by the look of him, he may, may be one of the strongest, but... Yeah. I think, you know, and he, and he is certainly skilled and, and, but there are, there have been players that are more skilled. So what is it about him? And I think that, you know, there was a story that came out a year or two ago and, you know, whether, whether it's entirely accurate or the numbers are, are precise or not, but the reports said that he spent more than $1.5 million per year on his health and fitness. And that's outside of what the team would be providing him, you know, for eight months or nine months of the year, which is amazing. But when you think about, I have no idea what his career earnings would be like. It's not just his salary, but his endorsements and everything else that goes into it. There's a guy that clearly understands uh, the value of investing in himself. Mm -hmm. It shows you what a priority his health and fitness is for him. Right. So I think that's, you know, we talked about just a minute ago. He certainly has fantastic genetics, but there have been athletes that were taller and faster and jumped higher. So what set him apart is that he married those incredible genetics with an incredible work ethic, uh, a pride and a professionalism uh, in his craft and a dedication and a desire to be the best he can be and invest in himself and, and not to rest on his laurels, not to sit back and coast or not to just use, uh, you know, the resources that are, are given to him. He went out and sought his own, which is very impressive. So I opened with a brief intro, but your former football player, longtime, you know, strength coach to some of the world's best athletes in a number of different sports, created a sports supplement, but you also have a, a number of ancillary business interests and kind of management roles even. So like we'll, we can get into a number of these different things, but like what of this, all the stuff that you do, do you identify most with? You know what the coaching coaching is a passion for me, uh, but I think that the un, you know the underlying theme in all of those businesses that I do is the one thing I, I really enjoy is I you know I'm I think of myself as a as a creative problem solver. So I, I like to see whether it's a person uh, or a product or a company that has potential or an idea that has potential and it's you know yet to be discovered or not properly utilized or, you know, is, is really, you know, unfulfilled. That's, that kind of excites me. And I like, I like being a problem solver in that way. And when I see athletes for me, I, I guess I'm always sort of a, you know, the real joy that any coach gets. And we, you know, we just spoke about LeBron James and, you know, as, as amazing as he is as an athlete, it would, you know, and it would be a truly an honor to work with a guy like LeBron, but, I'm not entirely sure how fulfilling it would be. I've never worked with LeBron. I've never met him. And, and I think he's doing just fine without me. So he probably should keep going. But my point being, I, I really get excited about, you know, the underdogs, about seeing, you know, opportunities, whether it's with people or, or you know, or, or companies where I see people that have great potential, uh, that have their, their values, their ethics, their heart is in the right place. But for whatever reason, just haven't been able to to discover exactly what they need to do to to take it to the next level. So that's the part that really excites me. And uh, coaching, 
is something I'm always going to do. I, I, I truly have a passion for that. I love to help other people realize their dreams. I love to help other people, you know, dig deep within themselves and push themselves to new limits. It's just a, it's a blessing to be able to do that every day uh, at work. You train a bunch of pros. Like I think, you know, we talked about a number of sports, but hockey, hockey is kind of core, correct me if I'm wrong, to, to what you do. You know, you got guys like Tom Wilson, Tyler Sagan, Matt Sundin. I know you probably don't love the fact that I just name dropped a few. Um, but no, 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 I'm going to get in trouble from anybody else that hears it and didn't get their name mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Tell, tell them I'm out of touch with stuff. So the, the, <laughs> guy, the guy interviewing you has no clue. You know, Matt's captain of the lease, the whole bit. So, so many of them are lifelong clients and, and like you become this trusted source of information to the players in season, out of season, and just like a good friend and confidant. Like, is that, is that kind of the position you always wanted to be or just morphed into that over time as a coach doing the things that you said you love to do, which is, you know, help underdog and anyone really just get better and find success? Yeah, I think that the, the trusted friend and confidant is, uh, is truly an honor. You know, if the relationship progresses to that level, that's the highest compliment that anyone could pay me. But I think that that's, uh, you know, first and foremost, I have to treat it, you know, as a professional relationship and I have a professional obligation and roles and responsibilities that I have to fulfill that way. I think that, uh, again, like we talked about a minute ago, the part that really excites me or interests me is as a, as a coach, it's not, it's not about hockey or it's not about Matt Sundin or Tom Wilson or Tyler saying it's not about that. It's about, just those individual people and helping them achieve their, their own personal goals. And, and, you know, that, that's the part that excites me. It just, it just so happens that I live and work in Toronto, Canada and, and hockey is the, you know, rules the day. So hockey seems to be where I've spent most of my time, but it really never was about hockey. And then, you know, as you said, I was a football player, but I would be just as happy helping a, you know, a ping pong player or a water polo player or a violinist or a chess player it really doesn't matter to me. It's not about necessarily the sport or the, or the notoriety. It's just to see, to see someone kind of come to you and put their trust in you and bear their soul and share their, their dreams with you and share their fears and insecurities with you. And then, and then work together to help this person uncover their untapped potential and achieve their dreams to see that, to see that and to be there that moment that that happens is just a really cool thing. Yeah, no question. Do you have, uh, you know, if we break open the uh, the bottle a little bit here, do you have any good stories to tell that that are, you know, airtime friendly? <laughs> yeah, well, you have to differentiate between uh, those types of stories. But I mean, there's lots of stories, but I think I think you'd have to give me a more specific question or topic. There's so many stories, you know. I know. I was just trying to put you on the spot and see if anything good came out. Yeah, well, you did a good job. Came out. Um, one that uh, kind of I like and strikes a chord is is naming your workout the Swedish Touch. And from my understanding, I'll be like my dad and not let the facts get in the way of a good story. So correct me if I'm leaving out the real details. Is the Swedish Touch, which is it's almost like your version of a wad. You know, I'm not comparing you to CrossFit at all, but kind of a legendary workout and almost like a baseline benchmark test for for people to see how fit they really are. And I'm, I think the origins are, are from Matt Sundin, are they not? Well, yeah. So originally, uh, originally the workout was uh, called the captain's choice and it was a workout that was developed by uh, the strength conditioning coach in, uh, in Stockholm, Sweden, that Matt's worked with from the time he was a young kid, who's a phenomenal guy, a, a real true, uh, expert uh he was a world-class uh, weightlifter himself and then uh became a coach and now he's uh, he's got a very senior executive position with the uh olympic committee in sweden uh, a guy by the name of leif larsen uh incredible guy who um i used to go to stockholm sweden in the summers to to work with mats and, and met leif and it was a workout that he developed to um Im- improve mats uh you know what he called work capacity because uh I think Matt's, if you, if you remember, was, as a player, was just a, a giant, a giant man, you know, and, uh, you know, six foot four, 235, 240 pounds, lean, strong. And unfortunately, at the time, you know, it's funny, you know, you, you look back at, at, at some of the films, especially early on in his career, you know, there was two, three guys hanging off him at all times. He was getting slashed and cross-checked and hooked. And there was no, you know, the, those things now would, you know, they, you'd be suspended for, for years and years. And now back then, those things weren't penalties at all. So 
uh, they just sort of had the opinion that, you know, Matt's had to improve this work capacity so that he could just go shift after shift and, and period after period with the, you know, the number of minutes that he put up. So it's a workout that uh, we tinkered with because uh, I think that, uh, you know, when I started to work with Matt's, uh, he was already, you know, well into his career and was already a phenomenally successful player and, and would have been without ever having met me. Uh, but the one thing that we established is that he needed to do a little bit more strength training and power training in season, not just in the off season, so that he would have that reserve of strength and power by the time he got to the off season. Because very often we found he was, you know, he was starting to break down because he he did log so many minutes and he had so much pressure on him and took so much pounding physically. So, but the problem is in season you don't have a lot of time to train. So we had to try to find a way to, to get the, you know, anaerobic uh, conditioning benefits, uh, you know, the aerobic conditioning benefits, but also do some strength training, power training. So uh, Leaf was the one who came up with the idea to combine something in, in weightlifting circles that's known as a Javorek complex. It was a modified version of that uh, with a ride that was catered to him because we, you know, we, you know, analyzed the heart rates and found out that that was sort of like how we could get to his anaerobic threshold. So that workout became there was two versions one was kind of a light version and a heavy version the light version was his pre-game warm-up oftentimes and then we would do the heavier version you know maybe once a week uh, or you know three or four times a month at the most just to kind of maintain that power endurance but i don't think people really appreciate and you've done that workout and you are one of the very few people that could actually survive it but uh, you know there are there are probably there might be 10 percent, 15 percent of the guys in the nhl right now that could do that workout it's that strenuous. And this is something that he would do on a regular basis. And it's, um, yeah. So that was originally the captain's choice. And then after Mats was uh, no longer with the Maple Leafs and uh, we, we thought we'd change the name to the Swedish touch to honor Mats, the great captain. And, uh, you know, also, you know, people coincidentally in a, an establishment in Vancouver that some people, you know, think it was named after, but it wasn't the case. But It, it lives on. The name is more gentle than the workout. And, <laughs> and, and by, by the way, I, I didn't bring that up, the fact that I did it way back in the day. There's no chance I could do it today, but it is, it is tricky. And to your point on mats, looking back, in my view, the greatest Leaf I've seen play, like I was a big Gilmore fan, but like to your point, he was an absolute workhorse, never got hurt, always was 80-plus points in an era where, you know, if you broke the 100-point threshold, you're leading the league in scoring. And he played with good players, but, you know, it's not like he had Marner and Matthews and Tavares buzzing around with them, right? No. Like he was, no. he's, he's ridiculously good. It's incredible. So, well, well that's and the, the interesting thing, like, like that workout. So here's the thing with that workout is that there's a, there's a bike component. So there's a three minute bike ride that you do in three different increments. And then there's, as you know, cause you've done it, there's a, a, a complex of weightlifting movements. So variations of the snatch and the clean and the squat that are, that are worked in, you know, where you do, you know, five reps in succession. So there are players, there are lots of players that could do the weightlifting component because they're strong enough, but they wouldn't be able to do the bike component because they're, they're not anaerobically fit enough on the bike to do that. There are, there are a number of other players who could do the bike, but they wouldn't be able to get the weightlifting portion done. So he was so incredibly well-rounded in his fitness. But then if you look at him on the ice, it was the same thing. He had incredible hands. He had, he had hands and, you know, and vision perhaps on par with a guy like a Marner, you know, Nylander, whoever the case may be now, or Matthews, whatever it was. But he was also a six foot four, 240 pound beast who could skate like the wind and had power. And he wasn't afraid to go into the the tough areas, wasn't afraid to make contact. Uh, So that, you know, his well-rounded fitness, uh, you know, was, you know, similar to his well-rounded style on the ice. For sure. So just to uh, switch gears a little bit, and we talked about it earlier, like you're, I'm interested in your opinion on, you know, the fact that you, you stay in touch with players, but only, you know, if players reach out and say, Hey, like Matt, I'm guessing they're like, you know, how am I eating? How am I feeling and stuff like this? And you kind of give them tips, but it seems that there's all these kind of micro coaches emerging in sports, whether it's skill specific coaches or even people breaking down video outside of teams is this type of thing evolving in sports and do you think it's kind of good or bad generally? And am, am, I, am I on base or off base with this one? No, you're on, you are you are absolutely on base, and uh, I, I think it has the potential to be great. I don't know that it always is great currently, and you know I think that there are you know there are good and bad 
coaches. There are uh, just as there are good and bad teachers and doctors and postal workers and garbage men. It doesn't, uh, you know, there's, so I think that there is the, certainly the potential for it to be good. You know, there's also, you know, as the old saying goes, sometimes you can have too many cooks in the kitchen and it spoils the stew. So I, I think that's certainly a possibility. I think that the one thing that's been, you know, was very hard for me early on in my career and I've transitioned out of it now, but it still is a challenge from time to time is that, you know, as a coach, sometimes you have the emotional need to want to be the person that provides the solution uh, and that overrides just the simple providing of the solution. So you want to be the one that saves the day. Mm. That's more important than actually the day getting saved or the the goal getting accomplished. So I think that you do run the risk uh, sometimes of conflicting messages you do run the risk of people wanting to, whether it's whether it's for you know notoriety or attention, or whether it's just their own you know emotional ego satisfaction. Uh, people want to be the one that can claim responsibility for the success of the athlete. I think I've I learned a long time ago that you know if I'm working with the best athletes in the world in whatever sport it may be, it's impossible for me to be an expert on every aspect of their conditioning, their fitness, their health. So Matt, like in 2020, we're, we're experiencing this uh, unique phenomenon in professional sports being this concept of, of a bubble um, and, and sort of people playing in certain locations like the NBA, the NHL, a few other leagues, but where, you know, take the NHL, for example, like Toronto and Edmonton where the city selected to, you know, host 50% of the team. So, you know, 50% of the playoff teams in Toronto, 50% in Edmonton. Um, and, and basically the players, teams, medical staff, everyone associated with the NHL is in this bubble for the entire duration of the playoffs. So if you get knocked out round one, you're in for round one, but if you go the distance, you could be in for, I don't know the number of weeks, seven, eight weeks. So as much as pro athletes are pro athletes and paid to be just that, like how does the bubble, do you think, impact performance or, or does it? That's a, a great question, and it absolutely does. And I think that these guys are paid to be pro athletes, uh, as you said, and, and you know, in every sense of the word, meaning that it's, it's their job to perform to expectations athletically uh, on the court, on the ice, on the field, whatever the case may be. But we often discount the fact that these guys are not robots. They're human beings, and they have all the same emotional stressors, uh, fears and insecurities that, that any of us have, uh, they all, you know, they have family pressures, they've got their own pressures. And I think that you, you know, and that's certainly been a, you know, some commentary or, you know, that on, on some players or teams that haven't performed up to their fans expectations, you know, about their being paid for this, but you know what, no one signed a contract knowing there would be a global pandemic and they would be locked down in quarantine inside a bubble city without access to their families, you know, whether that be, you know, mother, father, girlfriend, wife, their children, their friends for months. Some of these even, you know, there've been comments coming out about players mentioning the fact that there was actually one coach specifically in Edmonton who said that they had gone three days without ever having spent any time outside which would certainly lead anybody to be, uh, you know, prone to depression or anxiety. You know, you know, we need to be outside. We're social beings. We're social creatures. Those are great points. You know, if I, I were to put myself in the shoes of a pro athlete, like coming off such a long layoff and then just exploding into, you know, it's playoff time. Like there's a bit of a mental disconnect. And again, they should be able to regroup and put themselves in that frame. But that would be a difficult thing to do is, you know, all of a sudden puck drop, not, not having any finality or on the season, on awards, on where your status is, no momentum going in and just be like, well, playoff time. And then on the other side, once you're in there, you know, you're playing in front of cardboard cutouts and, and fake music and it's just, it, it loses its vibe a little bit. Look, it's been great. And I think they've, all the leagues have done a phenomenal job getting the production to where it is today and making it feel as close as it can to real. But you can see how that, you know, may impact some more than others. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we have these expectations, you know, based on the fact that 
he performed a certain way last year or based on the fact that a player performed a certain way in junior, they should produce at a certain rate. But we're in unprecedented times. You know, the situation that we're in right now is not something we've ever seen before. And how could you predict how somebody would handle the stress of a quarantine? Uh, whether that was in the preparation or the lead up to the bubble, you know, there were, I, I, I had professional athletes that were quarantined in a one bedroom condo with no access to, you know, forget about ice, but no access to proper gym training equipment, things like that. How, how could you determine how somebody would react in a situation like that? It really is unprecedented. So I think that you have to remember these guys are human beings and, and I understand why a fan would quickly come back and, and point out the amount of money that they make to be played. And, and there's no argument. They, they get paid extremely well for what they do, but nobody signed up for this and nobody knew exactly how this was going to work. And nobody knew exactly how these players would perform. And despite the fact that they make a very, very, very large amount of money to do what they do, they are human beings and they're susceptible to all the same emotions as we are. I guess in the next contract, the, the league's going to want, whether it's WNBA or NBA or NHL or any of the others, don't live in a condo, live in a house, <laughs> and make sure you have a home gym in case there's another pandemic. That's that. It's, it's yeah. sign on the dotted line. So just to shift gears for a sec, what about your, you know, we haven't really talked about it, but like your training philosophy and methodology, how would you explain your training philosophy? Well, it's a difficult question for me to answer because I, I could answer it with uh, technical mumbo jumbo and jargon specific to my industry. But I think the more important takeaway for me is that I, I try to look at these players as, you know, it's a nice segue from our last question. I try to look at these players as human beings and we try to take a holistic approach in how we develop the athletes uh, that we work with and the teams that, that I consult for. We, we try to take that same approach where, I believe that happy, healthy human beings who have been blessed with a lot of athletic talent tend to be better performers on the field or on the ice or on the pitch or on the court, whatever the case may be. So uh, that might sound a little bit, you know, uh, hokey pokey or a little bit soft, but, uh, you know, you know, Darcy firsthand that we still lift crazy heavy weights and we smash things and we throw medicine balls and we, we do all the cool beast mode, uh, aggressive training is that everyone, you know, clicks and likes on social media. But uh, the underlying theme there is that my goal is to make sure that these guys are healthy, that their bodies are functioning properly, uh, that they can have long careers and that when their career is done, they're not, you know, kind of in a heap that these guys are, are still healthy and vibrant and able to have uh, active, happy lives after they're done. There's so many things there that I would love to sort of dig into. One being, you know, the mentality of, we're talking about athletes, like high performing athletes and generally they're pretty young, you know, late teens through twenties and early thirties, I guess, for the most part. Yeah. But you also train everyday people, like executive type people. So how do you toggle between the two? And it's, uh, again, back to the, the point that really what kind of gets me up in the morning and makes me excited. And, and the reason I love what I do is, you know, I, yes, I own a gym and it's full of barbells and dumbbells and medicine balls and all, you know, some, some untypical things, but most of the typical things you'd expect to find in a gym. And, you know, I'm wearing track pants and a t-shirt, but I, I really don't think of myself, you know, regardless of what my job title might be. I, I don't limit myself to the the weight room guy or the the strength trainer. What makes me excited about my job is is helping individual people find kind of you know untapped potential within themselves and to work hard and achieve goals and dreams that they've set for themselves. That that really gets me excited. So that you know whether they play in the NBA or the NFL or MLS or 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 they are sitting at a desk, if they work at the bank, uh, if they're a stay-at-home mom, that part is kind of irrelevant to me. And, and yeah, you know, it's as a former athlete myself, there, there's, you know, there's a cool factor in working with some professional athletes and it, and it keeps me engaged a little bit in pro sports. And, and I can be very honest and say, you know, if I, if I didn't know anybody playing in a professional sports game, I'm probably not inclined to, to, to go and watch or to, you know, I, I would much rather watch 
uh, someone I know play or, you know, hang out with my wife, read a book. You'd watch football. Yeah. You know, but I would tell you, I'll tell you one thing. I, I, if I had, uh, you know, I would, I would rather watch a football game with, uh, someone playing in it that I know, uh, regardless of the level. So if I had a young high school player that I had worked with, I'd rather watch his game than watch an NFL game with two teams. I don't know. I'd rather watch a CFL game, uh, than an NFL game, you know, uh, I'd, so yeah, yeah, I love, I do love football for sure. I love all sports. They're great. But, uh, but I think for me in my job, in my profession, the part that really, really gets me fired up that I love is, is working with individuals. So, you know, as I do tend to ramble, getting back to your question, whether I'm working with, you know, and I have, I have one client uh, who was in the gym last week. He's been a client for 21 years now. He's uh, 76 years old, incredibly successful guy was a, you know, was a standout athlete. Uh, in his youth is now 76 and has had, you know, you know, knees replaced and uh, wrist replaced and multiple surgeries and, you know, lots of all the bumps and bruises that life throws at you in 76 years. I'm just as excited to see him in the gym, you know, accomplishing goals, getting stronger. Uh, and the principles never change, you know, so, uh, you know, the weight on the bar might be different for an NFL player or the 76 year old client. The specific goals in terms of being able to do X number of reps with X number of pounds or run a distance, those things are obviously going to be very different. But the underlying principle is the same uh, for an executive client or a professional athlete client. And, and I get just as excited for those clients to see them, especially, you know, some of my, when we talk about the clients that I have that are not professional athletes, some of these guys are incredibly successful. They are the LeBron James of the financial world. Some of these guys, you know, is that they, some of them have started, founded, run and sold their own very successful companies. Some of them are at the helm, you know, presidents and CEOs of large corporations. These guys, these guys are the all-stars of their world. Uh, just because it's not, you know, playing sports on TV, it's, it's, it's no less an accomplishment, but to see them come in and set specific goals work hard at them, you know, endure through the ups and downs and, you know, whether it's six months, one year, two years, or sometimes 21 years down the road to see the change and to see them become better, more well-rounded, you know, people. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's a blessing to go to work every day. And so, you know, these types of people can just like walk in and say, Hey Matt, I want to train with you or like how it's a good question. I've garnered a bit of a, and you, you would know this, I've garnered a bit of a reputation as being this elite exclusive, you know, very, you know, very hard to access. And the only reason is because I'm, I don't love the business side of my business. I'm not, I'm not uh, marketing doesn't, you know, that that's not my interest and I'm not a, I'm not a sales guy. I'm a terrible sales guy. So, so I have to promote for you. And then I guess <laughs> the bottom line. Well, not me. Definitely giving myself too much credit, but I, I get I get your drift. You deserve, you know, you deserve a lot of credit for that. But I would say this though that it's funny that being a little harder to find and being uh, a little tougher for people to seek out and creating whether whether they were uh, intended or not, whether they are organic or made, having some hurdles that people have to get over in order just to become a client. It's actually worked out to be, it was never the intention and I'm not, I'm certainly, you, you know, would know this, I'm not elitist by any means, but it certainly has worked out well because it sort of weeds out the people that are just kind of kicking the tires and the ones that are really serious about making a change. So if someone can find me and find my little gym and can navigate all the, the hurdles and the difficulties that go along with my little, you know, kind of underground dungeon uh, garage gym, as, as you know very well you tend to kind of end up with a clientele of people that really are there for the right reasons and, and are willing to overlook a lot of the, you know, the fluff and the, uh, the sizzle and the stuff that other people maybe sometimes get focused too much on. It's a good point. Like I think that probably applies in some way to your pro athletes as well. Like it is not an overly glamour. It's a great, great facility, but it's not an overly glamorous place, right? It's in the back of an arena, cinder block walls, not that big has everything you need and, and more, but you're right. Like you, you've got a winter coat on and minus 20 in the winter and you got to walk <laughs> around the back of arena to get in. But even in the summer when I, you know, I, I guess I keep going back to hockey, but when, when the pros are there, like they're very accustomed to being treated very well and having all the bells and whistles. Do you feel like you kind of end up with a certain type of player or athlete that, you know, one doesn't really care about those things. And this is not meant to be a lead in question, but I guess it kind of is. Um, and two, 
you know, like that resonates with them maybe a little bit more than training in, you know, Alabama football type facilities. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're absolutely right. And you do. And, um, I remember reading about, uh, the track and field club where uh, Usain Bolt uh, trained all the way from his youth up, up, you know, throughout his career. And uh, you know, these, they still run on, you know, dirt and cinder tracks. They've got a very sparse weight room with, you know, some rusty barbells and old beaten up equipment. And I, I, I remember reading how the, uh, there was at one point in time when, you know, they, and this Usain was not the only, they had, a, you know, numerous, numerous Olympians and, and, uh, you know, world championships competitors, level competitors at this gym, uh, record holders and whatnot. But at one point, I guess the, you know, when Usain was kind of in his prime, they could have got funding and sponsorship money from anybody to build any kind of facility they wanted, but they made the decision to stick with what they had. And I remember their coach uh, at the time speaking about how he felt that those, you know, very unglamorous, uh, sparse training conditions weeded out the athletes that didn't have the mental fortitude or the metal to make it, you know, and, uh, obviously, uh, athletes can make it not training with me or not training in a rugged training environment. There's lots of athletes that are very successful in training, beautiful, fancy, glamorous environments. So that's not, it's not the differentiating factor, but I would say that I think it does attract a certain type of clientele and those are the kind of people that would sort of resonate with me, which is great because it makes it going to work easier when you kind of vibe with everybody that's in your, uh, in your business setting. But number two, I think, you know, uh, in, you know, we were speaking earlier about how athletes could handle the uncertainty and the difficult times of this quarantine and bubble period, you know, may, maybe the bubble and the quarantine and a global pandemic is a bit of an extreme example, but I would say that, having the gym where not everything is perfect and, and athletes know that, you know, they, they kind of just have to roll with the punches when they train in my gym and everything is not going to be exactly laid out and perfect the way it would be at your team facility, but that's not an excuse. You still have to make it happen. You still have to get results. That mindset I think is very valuable. And I think it certainly helps these guys, you know, get over many of the little hurdles that, that are going to pop up during any regular season. We've had some of the greatest athletes in the world, train, you know, in that little gym. And I think about, you know, we talked earlier, I think about a guy like Matt Sundin training in that gym, whether it's, it's Tyler Sagan now training in that gym or, uh, you know, JJ Watt coming up with uh, spending a little bit of time there training in that gym. None of those guys complain. And I remember it's, it's funny, Matt's was, you know, one of, if not maybe the first pro athlete to train in that gym. And I was really embarrassed for the day that he showed up because, you know, here's a guy who's got access to the best of the best. And nobody cared. Nobody said a word. And, and, and the interesting parallel to tie in your last question, I, I have some very, very successful executive clients, you know, whether you measure their success by the accumulation of wealth or the impact they have in the business world, none of those guys have complained either. And these guys, you know, they've got probably more financial means than any of my professional athletes. No one cares. They were there to get results they understand that not everything is going to be perfect. Not everything is always going to, going to work out exactly the way you want. And that's probably why one of the main reasons why uh, they've been successful. Uh, and they applied that same mindset to their training at my uh, crappy little gym. It's almost like the lights aren't on in a way, right? It's like their own little place, their space, the people. And it's just like, they can just be them, do their thing, stay focused. It's kind of like you get out of the entertainment mode or showtime and you just do your thing, right? Yep. You know what you, you said earlier, like you alluded to your athletes still lift heavy and they you know, bang around weights that you'd see on Instagram or, you know, any social outlet. And I know that stuff kind of, again, not to put words in your mouth, but pains you to do a little bit, but it seems like everyone on Instagram is half naked, you know, shirts <laughs> off expert or not teaching people how to do kettlebell swings, burpees, squats, cardio, get jacked, eat right. Does that type of stuff have an impact on your business? Do you think? And like, do you filter through that noise, or is it just it just is what it is? Yeah, it's it's a challenge, you know. And I, I, it's something that I really it doesn't resonate with me, and uh, it's something I kind of resent about my industry. If I look at it as the strength and conditioning aspect of what I do, or the personal training aspect of what I do, it's all you know, me, me, me. Look, look at me, you know look, this is, look at how I look, look at what I have, you know, and that we could have a whole deeper, that could be a whole separate podcast about the problems of social media, about 
you know, look at my perfect life, look at me flaunt everything that's great about me. I, I think for me, that's, you know, and I, I am on social media, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. Um, some days I'm not sure why or, or what the heck I'm doing, but I, um, I am because it's sort of a necessity with the, especially the age of, of many of the athletes that I'm working with. It's sort of important, but the, the good thing is that I would much rather have a, a smaller base of quote unquote followers who really are there for the right reasons and are all part of the same tribe and it's all messaging and, and we, we have the same, you know, underlying value systems. But I think that it is a bit of a problem in that uh, an expertise or a, a pseudo expertise that's that, that can be generated and maybe not so much for my professional athletes, although sometimes they do fall prey to that, but certainly for young athletes, like here, here's a picture or a video of me, looking great or lifting a lot of weight, you should sign up and do what I do. Uh, and you know, as well as I do that, you know, we can, we don't have to look very far in pro sports to know that there have been a lot of very, very successful athletes who have failed as coaches. So I think that I, I'm less concerned about, you know, about noting my accomplishments. I, I want, I want my athletes, I want people to note their accomplishments. And even within that, I'm less concerned about look at what athlete X did in the weight room. I'm more interested about amplifying the message of how did that happen? It was that, was that because of the trainer or coach or were they just blessed with the ability to do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, and what message uh, for me, and, and this is something that's important to me because I feel that in my actual business, the, the scope, the, the volume of, of athletes that I see is very small. If you look at it, you know, if, if, if we project that out across all the athletes that are playing sports, even just in, even just in North America, you know, I might have, 40, 50 clients, right? Well, there's so many athletes that, that don't, won't and don't have an opportunity to, to, to be there for that coaching. So what message should I be sending out to them? You know, and I really want to, so hopefully that, you know, if, if I'm involved in social media, I, the message I want to be putting out is, you know, what are the underlying values? What are the underlying philosophies that you can use, especially young athletes, and I know Darcy, that's a that's a subject that's near and dear to your heart because I know you spent a lot of time uh, helping young athletes get ahead uh, early on in your career. But what message can those athletes uh, take and apply to themselves? So, so you know, a video or a picture of a guy running faster, lifting heavy weights that can that can be good. Like to look and see what can be done. That's that's it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I, there has to be more than that. How can I do that? What can I do at home? Like what message? Uh, can I take from, you know, Jordan Binnington's success, you know, uh, that I could apply to myself as a, as a minor hockey player, you know, those are the things that, that, that I would like to see more of. My two cents is that's a good mindset to take, especially if it's, you know, you don't want to be feeling like it's me, 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 look at me, look at like, look at my business. And, but if you are helping people, and you do do it for the right reasons, that should make sharing to the masses or more people a little bit easier because your mindset is just, hey, I want to help as many people as I can. And this is this actually makes social media a good thing, a good distribution method potentially, right? So I think maybe that's one way to to get rid of the the willies or whatever you, you feel yep. when you're like, hey, check my, check my stuff out, which, you know, is not your MO. It's certainly not uh, all bad and it has, it does have potential for good. And it's, I guess it's just a matter of embracing it and trying to find a way to use it to, you know, for good. So I think stuff like Peloton and CrossFit are incredible. Like they motivate people to do stuff, to get moving, to stay in shape, to do exercise. They, you know, kind of, there's that push and pull and it, I think they're awesome. This is, you know, your opinion would be more relevant to mine on this. But, you know, when I think about CrossFit and that's the way a lot of people used to train and obviously still do, and it's created a, a following and a lot of more fit people, but also a lot of more injuries, you know, strength training. I think you said this to me, if you think about an Olympian, you know, these guys clean in Olympic or they, they train in Olympic left snatch clean, and they spend their whole life training for those two things. Now you've got people walking off the street, you know, looking to get healthy, which is great, but they're doing like snatches till failure. I'm like, yes. see you later shoulder back yep. <laughs> you know like what that to me causes problem but you do look good and get shredded doing it like it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way there are some that are are dangerous uh for people who are not capable of doing them but that's no different than anything else you know jogging 
can be dangerous. So it's not, it's not a, it's not an issue necessarily with, uh, with CrossFit. I think it's an, it's an issue with, you know, some of the people who choose to do CrossFit that maybe, you know, that, that isn't the most appropriate choice for that person at that time. And, and you made, you know, the, that's the perfect explanation is that when you watch the Olympics and you see these people, you know, cleaning hundreds and hundreds of pounds or snatching these weight, the weight over the head, they didn't just come from working at an office, uh, you know, from nine to five, hop in their car and drive over to the gym to train and, you know, hurry home and feed the kids and get five or six hours of sleep. That's their life. That's their livelihood. That's all they train for. Right. So in that case, it's not, it's not necessarily that the exercise is con is bad. It's just that it's contraindicated for that person at that time. So this, you know, ties in again to this idea that, you know, someone looks on, on social media and they see, uh, and, and I think CrossFit's actually been really interesting because, you know, if, if I were to go on social media and see a professional bodybuilder, that's not something that I aspire to. And when I watch how they train, that doesn't interest me necessarily either. When I look at CrossFit, I think, hey, those are the things that I used to do when I was 21 years old and, you know, life was all sunshine and rainbows and I was a college athlete and I was cleaning and squatting and I looked great and I felt great and the world was all in front of you. So when I see people doing that and there's a place that I can do that and they, they look, you know, a way that, that I think is a good way to look and they're, they're doing things in a gym that I think are cool things to do. It's natural that, you know, especially athletic people and, you know, guys or girls that maybe were former athletes that they would gravitate towards that where they may not have gravitated so I think, I think there are, you know, and I, and I, you know, I, I have been uh, negative of CrossFit or, or, or critical of CrossFit at times, but there are some great positives. So things that I see, it's gotten people doing Olympic lifts, which, you know, for some people are great to do. Uh, I think it's gotten a message across to a lot of female, uh, train, you know, clients, trainers, whatever, that it's cool to be not just look muscular, but to be really, really, really strong like legitimately strong. I think that's a great message that women can be strong and lift heavy weights and do things that maybe are not so typical uh, in the gym. And, and you can end up looking great and performing and being able to do stuff, being more quote unquote functional. That's a great message. I think that they, you know, for a guy like me who really, really loves to lift weights, but does not love to do, you know, intense uh, anaerobic and conditioning intervals, it's great that they've, you know, put out a message that it's not good enough just to be a meathead and lift weights. You have to be well-rounded and be fit. I think that's great. So there are lots of positives there. Unfortunately, uh, you know, as is the case, you're going to attract a lot of type A competitive people like yourself, Darcy, and like myself. And, you know, you and I are great examples where, you know, I probably need to do a ton of prep work, mobility, stretching, warming up, for me to be able to train at a place like CrossFit gym. But if I show up there day one and you're on the platform beside me and you've got 300 pounds on the bar, no chance I'm putting anything less than 300 pounds on that bar. Cause it's a contest. That, it's a contest. Now, right? Oh man, that you have to keep me out of that place. Like I've never gone because I know I'm like, this was me. This was me from 17 to 24. 100%. But you're right. You know, in a heartbeat, I'd be limping out of there. If I walked into a CrossFit gym today, I would probably blow myself up. Now, is that is that the fault of CrossFit or or is that my fault? So I think the problem that they have is that, you know, if I went in there, I would be trying to compete and win the workout. You know, whatever weight is on the bar, I want to have the most. Whatever reps are done, I want to do the most. That's That's in my personality. So is that necessarily a problem with the the style or the philosophy of workout? No, it's not. It could be very good. The problem is that there are some people that probably shouldn't be there, uh, or probably if they were there, should be coached a little more closely. And uh, that they you know kind of therein lies the problem. One of the things that I, I love that you said is around like women getting strong. And I actually heard you know one of the guys you put me on to, Paul Check, one of his recent podcasts, just talking about strength and strong women. Not only is it good to be physically strong, but it gives you kind of that. Strength gives you confidence across the board, which is an interesting concept. But aside from that, like, how do you look at training males versus females? Is there any difference? 
Yeah, there are. I mean, there are there are some anatomical differences, you know, and uh, some physiological differences, especially certain times of the month. There's considerations for female athletes that would, you know, help, you know, kind of dictate some of your exercise choices. But I think overall, there are more similarities than differences. I've had some success with some, you know, training female athletes and some very, very successful female athletes. I didn't have them on a female training program. I had them on a training program, no different than anybody else. And, you know, we spoke earlier about, you know, the 76-year-old client in my gym uh, might be there beside a 21-year-old NFL football client. I don't treat them any differently. I don't have any, I don't have expectations that are different. I expect each of them to work hard and get stronger. I think on the bar might be different. Sometimes the coaching style is a little bit different. It's more of an individual personality type of thing. But uh, no, I think that, you know, that's one of the, the, the things that this, my industry has sort of done a disservice over the years to female athletes and, you know, maybe focused more on um, aesthetic goals than performance goals, or maybe has shied away from really pushing them in terms of the, the maximum strength type of work that they can do. And I think that that's something in my business that, you know, we don't, you know, whether you're a 21-year-old female Olympic athlete or a 21-year-old male professional athlete or a 45-year-old Wall Street, Bay Street client or a 76-year-old retired philanthropist, there's no reason why you shouldn't get stronger. I love that. If you had to pick one song to sing karaoke to, what would it be? Wow. <laughs> wow. wow. I, I have a serious satellite radio in my car. And one of the uh, things in, in 2020 that I am truly grateful for in life is the uh, U2X channel on Sirius satellite radio. I don't have much of a social life these days. I, I, I go to work and I come home. That's kind of the extent of my social life. So you probably wouldn't have a hard time finding uh, a U2 song that I wish I could, uh, I wish I could carry uh, Bono's range on some of those songs, you know? Yeah. He's legendary. Nice. That's a, that's a good pick. Maybe Iris or sometimes you can't make it on your own. Those, those might be too. If, if I could have his, uh, his range, that'd be good. Awesome. Appreciate your time, your work. You know, I think you're called a couple people legends, but you, you will prove to be just that in your field and um, you know, keep it up and thanks again. Okay. buddy. always great chatting with you. Doris. Take it easy, Matt. Your time is valuable, so thanks for joining us for this episode of Venture and Gains, where we connect great people, ideas, and opportunities. It's this idea of net weaving versus networking. Remember that you can find more episodes at VentureandGains.com, and if you know any entrepreneurs, emerging asset managers, or fascinating people that you think would be a good fit, flip us a note and let us know. Stay well. Darcy McConvey is a director of private capital markets at Graybrook Realty Partners and is registered under Graybrook Securities, Inc. The opinions and statements expressed by Darcy and the Venture and Gains guests are their own and they do not reflect the opinions of Graybrook Realty Partners or Graybrook Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.